Now, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We have Bibles for you. Everybody needs a Bible if you, because not everything that we're going to talk about is on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand and our beautiful ushers and greeters, handsome and beautiful, will come and give you one. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. We are in a series called Boldly. And we are actually finishing the series today. And what that means is if you are here with us for the first or second time, you're coming in at the end of the movie. This is sort of like the 23rd episode of 24. You know, Jack Bauer already has done a lot of stuff, and now uh, we're sort of assuming that you've caught all of this. If you haven't, you can go back and listen to the messages online. But we're going to finish the series today, and we're going to be talking, in the series we've been talking about boldness and how the early church, we've been in the book of Acts that describes the starting of the early church, the first church, the Jerusalem church. We've been talking about how boldness really was a characteristic that uh, was, was clearly true in that church and that God used it for that church to have an amazing impact. And the people who weren't normally bold, this is so amazing, they weren't normally courageous people. For some reason, at this season of history, in this church, at this time, these people stood up and were amazingly bold. And so we looked at it. They had like bold prayers, these prayers that weren't just prayers for traveling mercies or prayers before you, you know, you, you eat a meal or things like that. I mean, there were these gigantic prayers of God, you know, just do these amazing things because you're sovereign and, you know, work great boldness into us and stretch out through us to impact this community and, and the people that are around us. And there were just these crazy bold prayers that God actually answered. I mean, God was like, that's the prayer I want to answer. And he did it in, a, in the most amazing way. And then we looked at characteristics and one specific person, guy named Barnabas, who was extremely bold. And uh, for some of you, you have the gift of encouragement. That was Barnabas. He had the gift of encouragement. And we just saw how that gift, when it is charged with boldness, has an amazing impact. And in fact, there is no question that the church would have been very different had God not worked through the boldness of Barnabas, this authentic, encouraging Christian. And then we look, too, that the church at times, as things started to heat up and as the persecution sort of started to, to squeeze them a bit, how uh, the, the leaders in the church became amazingly bold, that they took stands, and their stands included uh, ways that they were harmed and things that happened to them, but that they were sort of like, we just can't stop talking about Jesus. We just can't do it. We wish we could, but we can't. And then last week, we saw that uh, the church, as it finally got to an organizational spot where the apostles couldn't take care of everything that was happening in the church, uh, that they, they started delegating. They, they, they called out a few men to say, we need help. And we came up with this principle last week that I just think is such a helpful principle, which is God's not called us to fix everything. If you're sitting there and you're worried about that, God's not called you to fix all the problems in the world or even every problem you come in contact with. He isn't calling you to that. There's no way you could do it. But we had our little saying last week that he said, what he does expect is that you would do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. That you would pick out that one opportunity that God's given you. And if you'll lean in on that, if you'll do what God's called you to do with that one, 
I think God's genius is if everyone does that, wow, a lot will get done. So just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And that brings us up to the story today. And I want to just tell you as we do this, as this series ends, um, at the end, I'm going to give an opportunity for those of you that have been checking us out and coming and you've been sort of kicking the tires and figuring out who Jesus is. And, uh, you know, you're, maybe you're feeling comfortable. Maybe this is your first week with us. But I'm going to give some of you, uh, well, all of you, but some of you will take me up on it, the opportunity to say, you know what, today's the day that I accept Jesus. Today's the day that I jump in, and I'm going to boldly jump in. So that's going to happen at the end, and if you're kind of in that place, you can think and pray about that as we go through uh, our teaching today. All right, so we're in Acts chapter 8, and today we're going to talk probably about the boldest thing, because today the boldness has to do with something going on inside of you, not just something you do, but an attitude to shift. And we're going to look at... uh, An interesting thing that happens, last week I told you they selected seven guys that would help to sort of distribute uh, food to some of the widows in Jerusalem. And those seven guys become very prominent people, and a couple of them, the the stories sort of follow. One of them's name is Stephen, and Stephen gets into a predicament where he's standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin is the religious leadership that has killed Jesus, and has flogged the apostles at this point. And so they're very dangerous in that sense. They can cause a lot of damage and a lot of destruction. And Stephen is now standing before them, and they're telling him to explain himself. Explain yourself. You know, tell me why you keep talking about this Jesus guy, because we've told you to stop. And Stephen actually gives one of the longest messages in the Bible. And at the end of it, they are so upset with him that kind of an amazing thing happens, and this changes the focus of the church for the rest of its existence. This one incident, everything changes after this happens. What it says is as he gets done with this message, uh, go to Acts 8, and then just cut back about two or three verses into chapter 7. So we're going to start in verse 57. Okay, so just look at that. And it says at this, At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, this is the Sanhedrin, this is the leadership that's just listened to Stephen, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Uh, Now, this is an interesting thing, because this was against the law. Uh, Maybe that's not surprising, that you can't just decide, we're going to kill somebody, and you do it. This was against the Jewish law. They, there was a whole court system that was set up. So this is not like going through the protocol at all. This is those people being so frustrated, so upset that a mob mentality forms, and they just, without counting to 10, without any trial, without any jury, they just jump on him. They take him out of the city, and this is so interesting because they decide, you know what, because part of their law says you can't kill someone within the walls of the city. They go, well, we better follow that rule. And so they drag him out of the city, were good Jewish law-abiding citizens, and then they kill him. They stone Stephen and kill him. It says, Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then it says, And Saul approved of their killing him. Now this is a very interesting detail that Luke, the writer of Acts, puts in. And it's sort of interesting, because you have this huge crescendo, you have all this stuff happening, and it seems like there's this really irrelevant detail that's thrown in, that there's this guy named Saul that is watching it happen. But uh, Saul turns out to become a very important person 
in the rest of the book. And this is our introduction to him. He is part of the persecution. He's not only a part of the persecution. Listen to what it says in, uh, in Acts 8.1. Saul, did I call him Paul or Saul? Okay, he's Saul at this point. Don't jump in front of me. He is not Paul yet. All right, so Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. And what we get here is that this guy Saul is not only just sort of a bystander watching this amazing thing take place, this horrible thing take place, he's actually leading the charge. He's actually the guy that says, oh yeah, these guys are going down. These Christ followers, these Jesus Jews, we have no room for them. They have got to disappear. We have got to take care of them. And he becomes basically sort of the henchman for, uh, for the high priest to go around and start uh, imprisoning people, confiscating their property, and even in some cases killing people. And this is Saul. We're introduced to this guy. He is very passionate about this. He feels like he has been called to this mission. He is going to eliminate the church. That is this guy's job. I'm going to eliminate the church. And this massive persecution breaks out at this point. And in fact, for the first time, uh, really, the Christians, the new Christ followers, the, the Jesus Jews, start to leave Jerusalem because the persecution is so heavy. And God starts using that to spread the word of Jesus to other places in Israel and other places around the Mediterranean. In fact, God has a purpose for it. Paul thinks that he's exterminating the Christians, Saul, thinks he's exterminating the Christians. In reality, he is spreading the message by doing this. So the Christians start spreading out all over the Mediterranean world. Now, this is an interesting thing, you might think. So how does Saul, how does anyone get to a place where they actually feel okay about killing someone? I mean, again, we read this 2,000 years ago, we go, well, that's just the way they were back then. They just killed people. No, that, that's not the way just anybody is. There was something that had gone on for him that he could actually justify being a God-fearing person, that he'd be on the wrong end of murdering someone. And I want to talk about that for a second, because actually the problem he has is a problem that we are prone to. We may not carry it to that extent, but this is a problem that we have. And it's interesting because Paul here actually gives us a great insight into why he thought this way in a book that he wrote to a church at Philippi. These were good friends of his, and he wrote a book. So you're going to get it in your program if you have it. But if, you're, if you want to get your Bible over there, go over to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to kind of go back before, uh, between Acts and Philippians. You can go over there. And here's why Paul had the attitude that he had. It says... Um, Paul, this is, he's speaking about himself, and this is sort of autobiographical, but he says these words about himself. He says, if somebody else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to say, listen, if anybody wants to put their pedigree up against me, if anybody wants to look at, you know, how they were born, what their lineage is, what they've done in their life, I'll put mine up against anyone. I am so confident with what I have done and how I should be elevated because of what I've done, uh, that I'll put it up against anyone. 
And now he starts to rattle off things that don't mean a lot to us, but in that culture and day and age, these are really important things. So he says first, um, uh, circumcised on the eighth day, which again, we would say big deal. You know, we circumcise our male babies usually. It's not that big of a deal, but it was important back then. That meant that he was Jewish. That means that his parents from the get-go followed the law. The law was on the eighth day that a male would be circumcised. He goes on to say this, uh, of the people of Israel, in other words, he's not a Gentile that's become a Jew. He is of the nation of Israel. He is Jewish. It says he's of the tribe of Benjamin, and he probably says this with a little bit of pride because Benjamin, there was 12 tribes in Israel. Benjamin was a pretty cool tribe to be from. Moses had given a special blessing to Benjamin. Benjamin had been the only tribe that had stood with Judah when it came down to the exile. And so being from Benjamin, you know, that was a pretty cool thing. Some of you, uh, when you talk about the college you're at, you say, yeah, I'm from USC. Now, you don't do that after last night. But in general, you would say, yeah, I'm from, or, you know, I'm from UCLA, or, you know, I'm, I'm an Irvine anteater. I don't usually say that with a lot of pride. But, you know, whatever you do, you know, you sort of say, well, that's what he's doing here. I am, I'm kind of on the, I'm not just a Jew. I am from the greatest tribe. My parents followed the whole thing. And so he sort of sums it up. He goes, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Jew of Jews. I mean, I'm as good as it gets. And then he says this, in regard to the law of Pharisee, Pharisee was a certain position that were religious leaders. They were considered the experts on the law, the most righteous of the most righteous. So he says, I'm in that category. We even know that he was taught by a, a Pharisee named uh, Gamaliel. And we talked about him about two or three weeks ago. Gamaliel, remember how he stood up when the apostles were going to get flogged and uh, were going to get killed and defended them. Uh, well, he is from that, which means it was one of the most prestigious rabbis that could have trained Paul up. And he's like, I'm a Pharisee. Not just a Pharisee. Gamaliel was my guy. I mean, that's the guy I followed. And then he says, as for zeal, persecuting the church. He puts that down as in the plus side. I am so passionate about my Judaism. If anything is going to threaten it, I'm taking them out. I'm taking it out. I'm doing it without reservation, without regret. I am proud of the fact that I stand for the Jews in this kind of a way, that any threat to my religion is going out. And then he says, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless, which is an amazing statement if you think about it. The Jews had thousands, Ten Commandments, but thousands of laws that spilled out of it. And he stands here and he says, you know what? I follow all those laws. I follow them all. You could not find a fault in me. So Paul is basically saying, look at who I am. Look at my pedigree. Look at my lineage. Look at what I have earned. And here's the big thing Paul would say. I am entitled. I'm entitled. I'm entitled to be heard. I'm entitled to be followed. I'm entitled to determine not only the religion that I'm going to follow, but Paul would say, I'm entitled to determine the religion you're going to follow. If you're not going to follow my religion, too bad for you. He would say, I'm entitled to be elevated. I'm entitled to be thought of you know, in a great way. I'm entitled to be served. All of these things Paul would say. And from that, from that, he comes now down with the conclusion 
uh, that basically I can do what I want. I can do what I want because I'm entitled. I'm entitled. Now, I bring this up because most of us aren't entitled to the point of thinking that we can just do whatever we want to anyone else. But entitlement is something that is a very common thing that we live in. In fact, uh, believe it or not, if you fall in between the ages of uh, 18 to 30, and I did not come up with this label, but you are called the entitled generation. So how do you like that? Now, I have good news for you. I don't think you're any more entitled than the rest of us. I think we're all entitled. A uh, really fun thing happened this week. Uh, Julie, my wife, and my daughter uh, went to the Ellen Show. And uh, have any of you ever gone to like a Hollywood show of some sort or Ellen or anything? Okay, a lot of you. All right. So anyway, she goes up to the Ellen Show, and somehow my daughter gets into the little group of people that are going to be selected if Ellen has to select someone. And she's 18 years old, and she is just so thrilled about this. And so anyway, they, they set these few people apart, and they said, listen, if Ellen tells you or asks you a question, uh, we need you to tell a lie that you've told your parents, some lie that you've told your parents. And so, you know, Kate's on the spot, and she's thinking, I want to get on the stage, and she can't think of a lie off the top of her head, or she won't admit to us that she could. And so she tells a lie that she had knocked the side mirror off of one of our cars when she was learning to drive. Uh, she, she actually had come home and told us, I knocked that mirror off. But what she told Ellen's producers is, I never told my parents that I did it. I said somehow magically it fell off the car, and I had nothing to do with it. Uh, so she actually lied to the producers, which it would have been better if it's just like, tell a lie that you're willing to tell us, and Kate would have been great. But anyway, so she does that. And lo and behold, the show starts, and Ellen calls my daughter down onto the stage. And so my daughter comes running down, jumping around, hugs Ellen. Ellen's like, whoa. And, uh, and so Ellen says, well, you know, have you ever told a lie? And so she goes and she rehearses this lie that she's lying to Ellen about and not really lying to us about. And she had prepared Julie because Julie was in the audience and she said, Mom, I might say something. I need you to just go with it. Just go with it. And so she tells, you know, what's supposed to be this lie. And I think the reason they had Kate there is because Julie was in the audience. And so Ellen looked at Julie and said, is this the first time you're hearing about this lie? And my wife lied. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, so we need to all repent. I agree with that. Okay, this actually has nothing to do with the entitlement, but all right. So, and so Ellen comes up and based on the lies of my daughter and my wife, gives my wife $500. Yes, $500 bills. Okay, so it's blood money, whatever. I don't care what you call it, but anyway, so does that. So anyway, here's the big question that started going around in our house afterwards, and here's why I tell you the story, is who is entitled to that money? Who is entitled to that money? Now, how many of you would raise your hand and say, really, pretty much Kate, who did all the work, including laying the foundation of the lie, really is entitled? How many of you would say Kate's entitled to $500? Wow. So the rest of you think my wife's entitled to the money? No, you guys aren't going to vote. Do you not want to play with it? And you think that we should have given it back to Ellen? How many of you say it should go back to Ellen? <laughs> All right. Well, you haven't thought of who was actually entitled to it, because you know who was entitled to that money? You. Me. Of course. <laughs> of course I'm entitled to that money. I handle the finances at our house. And so when they came home, I said, you know, that is so cool. Hand it over. 
And uh, we had a huge fight that night. It was great. We all went to bed not talking to each other. And here's the deal. Here's the deal on that. <coughs> um, and that is basically true. We did get into a huge fight. Uh, it's so easy to feel entitled. It is so easy to justify, I should get this. And here's what I want to say. Uh, whether we should feel entitled or not, I'm not going to argue about right now, because here's the deal. We do feel entitled. And I want us to look at that. When we feel entitled, how is it that Jesus wants us to react to that? How does he want us to deal with an issue where we're feeling entitled? And uh, it's very interesting, because what goes on and happens with Paul is two chapters later, in Acts chapter 9, Paul is going around trying to kill the church, and he goes to Damascus, some of you know the story, and he's literally knocked off his donkey by Jesus as he's going, and a blinding light hits, and Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Uh, Saul is struck blind immediately, and he is led to a house, and he becomes a Christian. He becomes a Christ follower. Not just a sort of Christ follower. He becomes as passionate about following Jesus as he had been about killing all of Jesus' followers. So he just shifts totally. Amazing change. But here is what is so interesting, because now you could still look, and he changes his name over to Paul. He's referred to Paul more. It's his Greek name. It wasn't a Christian name that was given. It was just the Greek name. Uh, you could still argue that he was just as entitled as he ever was. He still had the same lineage. He still had uh, done all the amazing things that he had done. He was still a great student of the Jewish Torah. Uh, all these things were still true of him. But what changes is a major attitude adjustment about what happens when I'm entitled. What am I going to do when I'm entitled? And we read here that as Paul in Philippians continues to tell his story, Look at what he says now. Um, he says uh, in verse, let's see, where are we going to start? In verse 7, uh, he says, But whatever were gains to me, I now consider lost for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Now, here's what he's saying here. Here's what he's saying. He doesn't actually walk away from his pedigree. He actually uses it sometimes. He certainly doesn't, like, forget everything he knows about the Old Testament. He doesn't walk away from the fact that he was raised both as a Greek and a Jew, and that helps him actually navigate on his missionary journeys. So sometimes he pulls out, I'm a Jew card, and that helps him in a situation. Sometimes he pulls out the I am a Greek card, and that helps him. In other words, when he says that it's all a loss, he's not saying, I'm not that person anymore. What he's saying is where I had used that for entitlement and to put under, other people under me, I'm not doing that anymore. That's not why I'm doing this anymore. He goes on to say this. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of the resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And he makes this really staggering statement because his whole life is now changed upside down. All that passion that he was using to destroy the church, he's now going to use to build the church, and he's going to use it to bring people into the church 
that are not Jews, which is a huge yay God for most of us because most of us aren't Jews. And it was Paul that led the way by saying, listen, if you're a Gentile, if you're not Jewish, you can follow Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. It was Paul that did that. But here's the deal. Whereas before he felt so entitled that he would kill people that didn't go along with him, his whole attitude has shifted now. His attitude is, I will use any means possible to spread the gospel outside of hurting other people. But I will allow myself to be hurt. I will allow myself to suffer. I will serve at all costs. And so it isn't just the focus of Paul's ministry that changes. His whole way of doing it changes. He goes, I will sacrifice myself to make sure that this happens. And here's what he realizes. He realizes that instead of entitlement, he needs to think entrustment, that he's been entrusted with this marvelous background, with this great mind, with the gifts that he has. He's been entrusted with them to spread the word. And now he's totally focused on doing it. And he says, now, and here's the rule. I'm not going to hurt anybody else, but I am willing to suffer to make sure this happens. I will do what Jesus did, which is to suffer. And you ask the question, where does Paul get this zany idea? Because it is so much not the way our world works. You go to political leaders, business leaders, you go to church leaders many times. Their attitude is, I'm entitled, and other people should serve me. And that is so much not the way Paul does it. And guess what? It is so much not the way that Jesus did it. John chapter 13. Last place I'll have you turn. John chapter 13. On the last night that Jesus is alive, a startling thing occurs. In fact, it's hard here for me to communicate how startling this would be. But uh, Jesus is with his disciples And they go to an upper room to celebrate Passover. And during that time, we read these words. In John chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, it says, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. In other words, the one who's going to betray Jesus, one of his followers, is sitting in that room, has already made this decision, set up this thing with the religious leaders. I'm going to betray this guy. He is sitting in the room. So Jesus already knows this, that one of the guys that's sitting right, looking totally like I'm with you, I'm on your side, you can count on me, he's actually already made this decision. I'm going to betray you. Uh, Jesus knew, now this is such an important thing. It says, Jesus knew, Jesus knew. Now, in the Greek, what this sort of, uh, what this means when it says Jesus knew, is it's not an idea that was brand new to him, but it was something that all of a sudden was underlined in his mind. In other words, it was sort of an epiphany. It's like, 
He had known this before, but all of a sudden, for some reason at this point, God makes it like, this is so true about you. Jesus knew. What did he know? That the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Now, that is an amazing statement. What that's saying is that Jesus wasn't just the most powerful person in the room. He was the most powerful person in Jerusalem. Not just in Jerusalem, in Israel. Not just in Israel, in the world. That's what that statement says. All things have been put under him. He controls all things. He had come from the Father. He was returning to the Father. If there was anyone who's entitled in that room, in that city, in that country, in the world, it is Jesus. He is entitled. It is a position that God has given him. That is where Jesus could land. He could stop and just say, hey, I'm entitled. And so catch the very next thing that happens. So, so, that is a hinge word here. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer garment, the garment that determined or or displayed that he was a rabbi, a very prestigious position in Israel at that time, took off the outer garment uh, and wrapped a towel around his waist, wrapped an apron around his waist, took on the form of a servant. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that he had wrapped around him. This is the most staggering thing. At the moment that Jesus realizes, you know, I'm the most powerful, influential, the most elevated person that there's ever been on this earth. His next step is to say, so I'm going to serve. So I'm going to take off all of everything that would put me and promote me in this way. I am going to serve. I'm going to go to the lowest form in our society. I'm going to do the most menial task. I'm going to wash feet. That's what I'm going to do with my entitlement. And what Jesus realizes is, hey, listen, playing the entitlement game doesn't get me anywhere. I've been entrusted. I've been entrusted to serve these people. And of course, this is going to open up 12 hours of pure hell for Jesus. I mean, nothing goes well for him after this time. He goes through an excruciating, terrible thing that lands him on the cross being crucified. Because in his mind, what he was entitled to didn't make any difference. It's what he did with it. And in his mind, it is to serve. It is to serve. And that's what hit Paul. Paul said, it doesn't matter what I'm entitled to. It doesn't matter if I have rights. I will serve. I'll serve. That's what I'm going to do. That's my game plan. I'm going to serve. And you know, that's exactly what comes to us now. Will we serve with what we're entitled to? Whatever it is, you know, maybe you have a great bank account and you've got all kinds of money. It doesn't really make any difference. In your mind, you think, I serve with that. Maybe you have tons of influence. And you're just in a place where you have a lot of influence. The question is not, are you entitled to that? The question is, what are you going to do with that influence? How are you going to serve others with that influence? Maybe you have a lot of resources. You know, maybe you have a lot of power. Maybe you have a great position. All of those things really are just questions of, well, how do I serve with those things? How do I make a difference? And I'm telling you, this is so countercultural to the to 
you know, the life that we live and to the people that we live around, it just, it, 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 it boggles the mind. I mean, it makes you think, wow, there's got to be something about Christianity if this person who's entitled is actually going to live as a servant. And so here's, here's uh, sort of the last bold ask of this series. Will you take what you're entitled with and realize that, no, you've been entrusted with that, and then ask the question, how do I serve? How do I make a difference in somebody's life because of that? And it may even involve me humbling myself or sacrificing something or serving in some way that I'm not totally comfortable with but I've been entrusted. I've got to use what I've been entitled to to help other people, to help spread the word of Jesus and the love of Jesus. That's what I've got to do. Well, we're going to come to communion time. And as we do that, this is something I'm going to want you to reflect on, is where have you been entitled? Where have you been gifted? Where have you been given things by God? And how are you going to serve? But before we do that, uh, I told you, you know, we finished a series here. And there's several of you, many of you, that have sort of journeyed through this series. Maybe you've been part of our church for a while. And one of the things that was interesting, when Jesus got up to wash the disciples' feet, uh, one of the disciples wouldn't let him. One of the disciples said, no, you can't do that to me. Guess who that was? Peter. Peter says, you're not going to do that for me. And Jesus makes a very cryptic statement. He goes, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. And so reluctantly, Peter allows it. But here's what Jesus was saying. Unless I serve you first, you can't serve somebody else. Not in my name. You have to allow me to serve you first. And really what he was saying is the time is now not far away where I will hang on a cross and die even though I'm totally innocent. But I'm doing this for you, Peter. For you, John and James and the rest of the guys. I'm doing it for you, Judas. I'm doing it for the people that will actually stake me to the cross. I'm doing it for every person in Israel at the time. I'm doing it for every person down through history. Because I'm innocent, as I die, I can die in your place. Because you're guilty. Because you're guilty. But this is the way I serve you. This is the way I serve you. And to follow Jesus, if you want to serve in his name, if you want to be in his name, you've got to allow him to serve you first. So here's what I want to do. For some of you, you've never made that commitment. You've never... You know, maybe you feel like Jesus is a good guy and you love our church and you're sort of, you know, you're, you're loving everything you're learning and things are going well. You've never made actually a personal commitment. And right now, I want to tell you that Jesus is coming to you with a towel around his waist and he's saying, I want to wash your feet. Will you let me? You're going to let me wash your feet. And today, maybe is the day, today is the day when you say, yes, wash my feet. I want to accept you. I want this to be personal. I want to follow you with my life. 
And I just want to ask you, if there's anybody here that's feeling like today's that day, today I want to do that. I just ask you to stand up. I'm not going to ask you to say anything. You're not going to go anywhere. Nothing's going to happen. I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray for you. So if today's your day to do that, just stand up right where you are, and I will pray for you. decided, you know what, it's worth it to serve. It's worth it to spread the word to people that are outside of the faith, outside of Judaism. It's worth it. And just as they're standing, there was a day a while back where I stood too. There was a day where a lot of us stood. Jesus, we are so grateful for the sacrifice that you made. We are so grateful that when you were entitled when you could have had us bowing before you and serving you and had all rights to that, you decided, no, I'm entrusted with something. I'm going to serve. And we stand right now as those people who are clinging to you and following you. And I pray for the people that are standing that today will be a day that changes their eternity. And you promise that it will be, that it will change their lives, that it will change the way that they see themselves and the way they see you. And I am so grateful for these folks. I pray that you would give them great blessing. And we know too, Lord, that there will be all kinds of trials and hardships. You promised that as well. But now they've got your spirit. And now they will move in your power. And they will serve as you served us. Thank you for these people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.